are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you on school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha, and today we have our co-host, Brandon, with us, and we are joined by our guest, Dr. James Zogby, who's going to tell us the history of Palestine, Israel, Zionism, and talk a little bit about how Christianity fits into this puzzle. Dr. Z, thank you so much for coming. Um, We've been trying to have you for a while, and I feel so excited that you're finally here. (laughs) Oh, great. Thank you. I kind of want to maybe lead people through the formation of the Zionist movement. In your book, you talk about some of the early Zionist thinkers or whatever, and one of them claimed that it was a people without a land in search of a land without people. Can you talk about the inherent, is it white supremacy, European supremacy? Like, what do you call the kind of rhetoric that was going on with the early Zionists? Well, let's, let's go to the beginning on this. The movement of political Zionism uh, began in a time in Europe where Europe was colonizing Africa, Asia, and doing so with impunity. Uh, the notion that these were lands that were rightfully belonging to those who conquered them and those who could best exploit their resources uh, was something that was commonplace. And the British had a unique way of of doing this, and that is that they would send out surrogates in the form of companies, they called them, Mm -hmm. uh, the East Company and the India Company and the South, the Africa, there were companies in Africa. They would send out groups of, uh, in other words, of occupiers and settlers who would sort of manage the conquered land for the British government, for the the empire. The Zionist movement tried a number of different approaches of of ways to get someone to sponsor them so that they could escape Europe. Um, This wasn't the view of every Jew by any means. In fact, it was a minority movement all along. Most Jews saw their place being in the countries in which they they existed. They didn't want to live in the ghetto. They wanted to be assimilated. But it was the ghetto mindset that said, we don't belong here. We belong somewhere else. We belong in our own place. They tried uh, Uganda. They tried going to different uh, uh, sponsors to see if they could get someone to support them. And they finally fell on the Brits. And the Brits were already inclined to support them because there was going back before there was even a Zionist movement. You had you know, British members of the House of Lords or, or people in the Foreign Office saying, you know, we've got to protect the Suez Canal, we've got to protect the, our access to the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, we need someone to help us colonize. And they actually said, what better group to do that than, than the Jews? They'd be the, the perfect agents for us in the Eastern Mediterranean. To Through them, we could protect the Suez Canal and have access to the Eastern Mediterranean. And so, Understand that when when Zionism was saying these things, in part they were saying them because it was a perfect fit for what the British Empire wanted to do. They wanted an agent who would govern in their stead. So they looked at Palestine as a vacant lot where they could simply reestablish their Jewish homeland and serve the interests of the common of the empire to govern in their stead. 
so it was for them a land without a people for a, a people without a land. And they were going to be the perfect agent to colonize it. And also, like, they considered Palestinians, like, much of the way they considered Indians in India, like, not worth the... Yeah. I mean, they were just, they were, they were like, <laughs> the way the indigenous people were viewed here in America. They were trees that had to be cleared to make way for civilization and, uh, and agriculture and whatever else. And that mindset has unfortunately existed up till today. I mean, where not just in the minds of Israelis and supporters of Israel, but literally across the board. I mean, I think if you read American journalism, if you read think tank papers, it's always Israeli people versus the Palestinian problem or the Arab problem, or how do you get the, the problem solved so that the people, that is the Israelis, can live in peace and security. Palestinians are never viewed as, as people, as equal human beings with rights of their own. They are unruly obstacles to achieving peace for Israel. So how do we make it, how do we pacify them or, or at least control them? That mindset is behind almost everything that gets written or governing decisions that get made by Congress or by successive administrations. I, I've seen this like bipartisan. Um, I've seen like some of the disgusting things they allow in New York Times against Palestinians, like they would never allow it against any other group. No, no. If you look at it, I mean, it's Palestinians, while Israelis exist as real people, and we can, you know, sort of picture them in our minds and they suffer and they, they fear and they're insecure. And when an Israeli is shot, we know the name and the family and, and it, it, there's a humanity there. Palestinians are objectified. They're either a simple body count or just an impersonal, you know, a 22-year-old was shot and killed, period. That's it. Who was What was his family? You know, did he have hopes and dreams of a better life? The kind of story you'd see about an Israeli, you never see about a Palestinian. That's the, that's the big problem. There was one New York Times article from... 2006, I believe, that just like still stuck with me. The headline claimed that Israel, uh, two killed as Israel bombs like Hamas headquarters. Then when you read the first paragraph, it was an eight-year-old kid and four-year-old kid. And I was like, that sounds mm -hmm. like a school and not Hamas headquarters. That just like stuck with me. The propaganda of human shields, like, no, they're not using them as human shields as much as Israel doesn't care about shooting children. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I've done studies over the years on, on stories like that that have rankled. The one that I'll never forget was in the early part of this century. There was a story where a seven-month-old Israeli baby was shot. And it was three days. It was a front-page story in the Washington Post and in the style section. You knew the name of the baby, the crying parents, and the whole story of them, etc. And of course, it was a tragedy, and it should have been covered. But at the very same time, there was a three-month-old baby in Gaza killed by an Israeli sniper. It was covered as, uh, by an, as an AP blurb in the World Roundup. It, got, it was in the third paragraph mentioned three-month-old baby shot by Israeli sniper in Gaza, no name, no interview with the family, 
no sense of the fact that there was a personal tragedy here. And that thing has persisted throughout. So I guess one of the most pivotal moments was the Belfort Declaration. So what did Lord Belfort do and what exactly was the Belfort Declaration? It was something that the the Zionist movement needed. They wanted to have a commitment from somebody to give them land somewhere. And as I said, the Brits were, it was a marriage made in heaven because the Brits were looking for somebody that would help them govern in a way favorable to them, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean after World War I. And so Balfour, after meeting with and, and being pressured by, there's a whole backstory to the thing, wrote this declaration that he would recognize the land in Palestine in question as the homeland of the Jewish people. He added a phrase about that would respect the rights of the indigenous people there, but of course that was ignored completely. The more telling thing was that there was a dispute between Woodrow Wilson and the Brits and the French in the aftermath of World War I over what to do about these recently liberated territories. The Arabs had their own claim uh, to make. Um, uh, Sharif Hussein, the, who led the Arab revolt, had a letter from the uh, British general saying that uh, if the Arabs joined the revolt against the Turks and uh, opened a southern front against the Ottomans, that the British would recognize Arab independence. That was one claim. And then there was the Balfour Declaration made a few years later that contradicted that claim. So Woodrow Wilson came forward. I mean, he was an absolute bastard in terms of racism and segregation here in America. But in the the rest of the world, he had a more progressive outlook and he advocated self-determination, that that people in the recently liberated territories uh, from the colonial empires that had been freed uh, from the losing side, from the the Axis side, that they should have the, the right to determine for themselves what they wanted. So what he did in Palestine was, and actually in the whole Arab East, was he commissioned the first ever poll and as somebody who polls in the Middle East, I kind of like it because the King Crane Commission actually went and surveyed thousands of people across the region, people who represented organizations, people who represented churches and mosques and clubs of different sort. And there were a whole bunch of civic organizations that existed at the time. And they went from village to village. I mean, the, the demographics that they covered were really substantial. And at the end, they found that 80-something percent wanted a unified Arab state, overwhelming 90-plus percent did not want a Jewish homeland in the Middle East. They wanted Palestine to be part of the whole thing, uh, of, the, of the Arab state. And, uh, and actually, they preferred America to Britain if they had to have a mandate, uh, if somebody had to have a mandate. When Lord Balfour was presented that, I, I think his quote, which is years after the Balfour Declaration, is so telling. He said, that he did not care what the aspirations of the Arabs who lived in that land were. They meant nothing to him. That more important was the potential of the Zionist movement. And so he, you know, he and Wilson clashed over that. Um, So this is going to be a weird question. So one of the early Zionists was Adolf Eichmann, which just like always boggles my mind. Like, 
What was it about Zionism that Adolf Eichmann supported? Well, it goes back to the the, the notion of the the emergence of Zionism in the the sort of the political map of what was unfolding in Europe uh, at the time. There was a progressive point of view that saw the creation of the nation state as a way of creating equal citizenship uh, for those who lived within the borders. There was an ethno kind of ethnic nationalism that saw the nation state as the state of just the particular people who lived in that, uh, who were of a particular ethnicity in that area, with seeing other minority communities in that area not as equal. And there were then transnational movements, in particular socialism, that saw the nation state as a threat to, uh, because they saw it as potentially ethnic-based, they saw it as a threat to equal rights for for everybody. So there were these three currents that were developing. Zionism placed itself in the ethno-nationalist mindset. And they said, there'll never be a place for us in France. There'll never be a place for us in Britain. There'll never be a place for us anywhere. And, you know, cases like the Dreyfus case sort of spoke to them, saying, you see, we'll never be accepted here. Now, at the time, remember, in, in some of these countries, Jews were living in ghettos. Uh, they, were, they were segregated. And there was a, a, a ruling religious elite in the ghettos who liked it just the way it was. It was just their leadership was protected. They didn't have to worry about uh, being challenged by um, external elements. They held religious and ethnic sway over the the communities that lived in the ghettos. They were challenged by the, the more secular parts of the Jewish community who had become involved in a range of activities from small business to labor organizing, Many of them had become socialist because socialism represented for, the, for, for these Jewish intellectuals a way of finding an identity greater than the nation state that wouldn't subject them to being discriminated against or seen as a, as a minority that did not get equal rights. And so this clash between these worldviews of we'll never be accepted, we should stay among ourselves and, uh, and subject to our... Uh, religious elite versus this more secular mindset was was a real challenge. Zionism obviously placed itself in the the hands of the former. I mean, they were that's where they were. They it was it was Jews who wanted to go stay in the ghetto, who wanted to be in the ghetto. The thing is, is that there were those nationalists in Germany and in France, etc., who said, "We buy this. This is pretty cool. I mean, the we don't want the, these Jews and other minorities." challenging our pure ethnic state. Uh, And so either keep them in the ghetto or let's get rid of them and send them someplace else. And so, yeah, there were some in the Nazi movement who said, this is uh, is exactly what we want. We want them the hell out of here. And there were some, and I think sometimes it's unfairly projected that, you know, to say that Zionists were complicit in the ethnic cleansing of Germany uh, because they supported that notion. They were trying to save their people. They were trying to find a way out. And they found that as long if if the if the Germans wanted them out and were willing to get them out, they were willing to, to take them out. The consequences of that, of course, were fatal, fatal for the Jews, fatal for the Palestinians, 
but nevertheless, I mean, I think that it, it, it's unfair to to sort of cast dispersions, just as I think it's unfair when, you know, when they look at, uh, you know, they look at the Palestinians and say that they were allies of Germany because they opposed the immigration of Jews to Palestine, or the ones who say that the Irish were allies of Germany because they refused to support Britain in the war. No, I mean, they were living under a colonial rule. They were seeing their homelands, whether Ireland or, or, or Palestine, ripped from them. They were seeing the British colonizing them or, or the British and the Zionist movement colonizing them, and they were not willing to support that activity. So I, I think, you know, it, it's a bit of, uh, it's unfair on both sides to, to hold either the Zionist movement or the Arabs as complicit. This was a massacre by Germans of Jews. This was bigotry and racism of Germans against Jews and, and nothing nothing other than that. Absolutely. Um, so let's get back to this time period, like around 1935, we got more and more movement of Jews from Europe to Palestine. And at that point, there was a big rebellion of the Palestinians. Uh, do you want to talk about that? The 36 to 39 revolt yeah. was uh, started in the cities, moved to the countryside within a short period of time, a couple of years. The Palestinians controlled almost 80% of the territory. They had been very successful. And this was, you know, with, with the war looming, the Brits were nervous about having to spend so much time pacifying this territory or being on the defensive in the territory. And so they appealed to the kings to say, can you help us calm this down? And so two things happened. One was there was that effort made by the kings to achieve a compromise. And the British came up with a commission report that studied the situation and it pledged no more immigration and no decision made with regard to the future without the consent of the, of the, of the people themselves. So with the resolution of the negotiations and the Peel Commission report, the Arabs agreed to disarm until the war was over. What they didn't realize was that the British were double, going to double deal. They were disarmed, and meanwhile, the, Jews, the, the Jewish forces were being armed and trained by the Brits uh, to be a, a, a frontline defense for them in Palestine. What the Brits also didn't take into consideration, whether willingly or, you know, just being not fully understanding of what the consequences would be. I'm not sure if I can attribute motive to it. But nevertheless, at the end of the war, you had a disarmed Palestinian population waiting for the Brits to fulfill their promise and an armed and trained and organized Jewish movement that was hell-bent on fighting for independence. And so the, the tide turned in, six, in those six years from 39 to 45 from an Arab movement that had control to an Arab movement that was disarmed and, and quite vulnerable to being conquered. And this brings us to the mass expulsion of Palestinians from their houses in Nakba. So do you want to explain to people what the Haganah were? And then we can talk about the Nakba. Well, the Haganah was the armed Jewish presence 
supported by the Brits that gave them you know, the, the decisive edge militarily at the end of World War II. There was, at that point, the Brits were trying to sort of pacify a situation that they had created, and the Jewish guns turned on them. And so the Brits finding, you know, an Arab population waiting for them to fulfill a promise and hostile, a Jewish population that had its own ambition to have independence of their, on their own and began fighting the British presence, the British sort of surrendered, threw their hands up in the air as they would characteristically do and blame the people who they put in this situation. You know, it was the, the Jews and the Arabs were crazy fighting each other and we're getting out of it. And they threw their hands up and they said, we're leaving. And the UN, they asked the UN to take over. So the UN came up with a partition plan, which if the US had not been so involved in pressuring smaller countries to support, probably never would have seen the light of day. The partition plan was really unacceptable and stupid on, the, on, the, on face value. Uh, while the absolute majority of Jews in Palestine, actually almost all of them, were in the Arab, the Jewish sector of the state, it was still 45% Arab. Meanwhile, the Arab side was completely Arab. And the Arabs said, why should we, why should we accept a partition where in the, what is the Jewish state is going to be 45% Arab and has a lot of the, the, the lands and agriculture that we have cultivated for years and is now going to be under Jewish rule and no guarantee that we'll have equal rights in this, uh, in this Jewish state. It'll be a Jewish state. It won't be a, a Democrat. The Arabs countered with there should be one state for everybody living there and wasn't accepted. The partition passed. What was going on sort of behind the scenes was that the, the Jewish forces were laying a plan to expand the Jewish state, to make it more contiguous and more viable, which meant basically stretching out uh, the, the area connecting Jerusalem to what they, they, they controlled and, and extending their control to the whole Galilee, which was in the north. And part of that plan required the expulsion of the civilian Arab populations, in particular from the, the north, uh, but also from the areas that they were going to, on the road to Jerusalem, that they were going to the villages and, and, and uh, towns around there. The result was the, the deliberate creation of a massive refugee problem and what Arabs call the Nakba. What's always been intriguing to me is how Jews continue to deny that this happened. And even though their own historians now acknowledge and the records are there. There are videos. Um, <laughs> that show that they deliberately expelled these people in order to make, as Ben-Gurion said afterwards, uh, he celebrated the fact that there was a double miracle, he called it. The state was larger and more Jewish. And they began to demolish the Palestinian villages that had, they had evacuated so that people couldn't return. I mean, they, within the first three or four years, they passed laws and made decisions uh, to make irreversible this evacuation that they had uh, accomplished in, in 80, 48 and, and early 49. Uh, 400 plus villages were demolished. Uh, they passed a law called the absentee property 
vault, which all of the Arab orchards and businesses that had been evacuated would now revert to Jewish control. And I, I kind of find it really aggravating when I see not just Jewish demands being made that, that, that Germany or Poland restore Jewish properties, which I believe they have an absolute right to do, or that you know, this is the hundredth year of the, ninetieth uh, year rather of the, the massacres that took place of Jews in Hebron, in twenty nine, and they're also demanding that Jewish property be restored in Hebron to those who were uh, forced out. Absolute right. I mean, I don't question. But at the same time, there is an absolute right for Palestinians to have the right to go back to Haifa and Aqa and Lod, and, which is Lidda, and all of the, the villages in the Galilee from which they were forcibly expelled and whose lands were taken from them. And to, for Israel to say they have absolutely no right to it at all is unconscionable and, and, and should be condemned. Refugees have a right to return and they have a right to claim their properties, period. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters. And that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. Can we talk about one of the, I guess, worst massacres, um, Dyer Yassin? Well, there, yeah, there's, there were lots of them, but Dyer Yassin was notable for one reason. Number one, the size of it, the brutality of it, the throwing bodies into a well. But the other part was that the use that was made of it as Haganah trucks drove through villages with loudspeakers saying the fate of Dier Yassin will be yours, uh, flee for your lives. They used it as a weapon to scare people uh, into leaving. Yeah, uh, for me, that was like the brutality of it. Like, not, no one was left. That seems like in America, they ignore everything from like 1920 to 1967 sometimes or even later. And it leaves like an imperfect picture of what actually happened. Sure. I mean, it's history uh, of convenience. It's, it's the part of the narrative that fits the story you want to tell. So the way it begins is, in 1948, the state of Israel was created, and the tiny state was immediately attacked by surrounding Arab neighbors who didn't accept its existence. That's where the story starts. And so I always say that, that the meaning of history is in part determined by where you start it mm -hmm. and also determined by where you stand in it. And so if you start the history in 48, you get one story. If you start it in 1914, you get a different story. But they, they decide to start the history where they want to start it, which is in 48 instead of in all the period that came before. And that the need to fill that blank in... <laughs> And if you start the history, if you're standing from the perspective of the Brits, it looks like one story. If you stand in the shoes of the, you know, the Zionist movement, it's another story. 
But if you stand in the boots of the indigenous Palestinian people, you get a very different story. And, and that, I think, is, the, is part of the problem of doing history, is deciphering from the, the history you read why a particular starting point was used and what the vantage point of the writer is. I choose to write from the vantage point of the, the indigenous people who have been oppressed, not from the oppressed. One thing that has always surprised me is that you're a Palestinian Christian. Jesus and all like all the people in the Bible would be kind of like you. And yet the American Christian movement is overwhelmingly Zionist. And that contradiction I can never reconcile. Uh, number one, I'm Lebanese Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, the Christian evangelical movement is clearly... I don't even know the word to use to describe it. It's a stretch. For many, many years, the, the, the theology that they represent was, was viewed as heretical because they view the New Testament not just as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but they view the Old Testament as the predictor of what will come next. So that they call them, it's called millenarian, that is to say, it projects the future, but it's called predispensational millenarianism, meaning that as the Bible in the Old Testament saw the gathering of the Jews in the promised land and then leading up to the birth of Jesus, who was to be the Savior, they view the New Testament as beginning the story that will play out exactly the way the Old Testament played out. So they believe it's necessary to have the incoming of the Jews it's necessary to have the, the, for the second coming of Jesus, the Jews all have to be gathered in the Holy Land. And then the, 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 there will be the conflicts that ensued uh, between the forces of good and the forces of evil that will lead to the destruction of the world and the second coming of Jesus will come at that point, just like he came during the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a strange theology. but And I don't know how many of its adherents actually believe in it. I mean, the folks who wrote like the late great planet Earth, the, the people who like projected that whole theology. Hal Lindsey. <laughs> Hal Lindsey, right. And, and Pat Robertson. I mean, Pat Robertson would, every time there was any little conflict in the Middle East, he'd, he'd, um, uh, he'd go to the board on, on, the, on his show, The 700 Club, and he'd say, ah, you see, the forces of evil, the Gog and Magog are going at each other. <laughs> and believe me, folks, the second coming, Jesus is coming. I can feel it. I, and it was like, you know, like do it over and over again. How many people who watched it believed it? I'm not sure. But what I do know is that what got inculcated in that movement was not so much the crazy extent of the theology, but that Israel was necessary and God wanted it and Jesus loves it. And if you don't believe in that, then you're not a good Christian. That, that all got tied up in one simple equation. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, and what's really interesting is that how many of those folks are basically anti-Semites who don't give a damn about Jews other than they see them as the cannon fodder necessary to bring on the second coming of Christ. I call them anti-Semites for Israel. Yet they are the bulwark in the Republican Party right now. And Peter Beinart, who wrote, a, I think, a wonderful little essay a while back, trying to explain them, saying that 
they're basically white supremacists who look at Israel as a model, white supremacy squashing, using all kinds of police state tactics to squash people of color. And that works for them because they say, yeah, that's what we ought to be doing here. They don't like the Jewish people, but they revere the fact that the Jewish people belong in Israel so as to bring the second coming of Jesus. And it conveniently helps the uh, the project of a white ethno state here. And that's the, I think, important for people to understand, like that's the connective tissue between white nationalist forces here today and Zionism. That's why Trump is so tight with Netanyahu. That's why all these interests converge. Which is why it's so wonderful that you have in the Jewish community today, this really significant and substantial debate and groups like Jewish Voice for Peace or, or If Not Now and, and J Street, which, you know, while I, you know, differences with them on some issues, the fact that they're willing to break from the sort of the establishment consensus, raise some important questions um, and create space for debate is really, really significant. So this is, I think, an important time, not only in terms of the debate in America generally, but in the rejection of sort of the groupthink that dominated thinking about Israel in the Jewish community and in the rest of the country. There is, for the first time in a long time, a real substantial debate brewing on these issues. Can you talk a little bit more about your religion and the rich heritage of the Christian community and Palestine? And in like most of the Middle East and how Middle Eastern view of Christianity is like a little different than the Western view. I brought a Palestinian Christian priest when I was running the Palestinian Human Rights Campaign in the 70s. I brought him to meet with religion editors from all the different papers and wire services. And we had breakfast uh, here in Washington. And the first question came from a guy from AP who said, now, you're a Palestinian Christian, Arab. Is, it, is that hard for you? <laughs> and he said, no. And he said, well, well, exactly when did your people convert? <laughs> and he said, maybe about 2,000 years ago. Um, and he said, but you know, if my ancestors had known that by following Jesus and becoming Christian, they would lose their right to live in their homeland, He said they probably wouldn't have, would have thought differently about it, which sort of blew the minds of the folks who were there. But yeah, I mean, look, there's been a Christian presence, obviously, since the beginning. In fact, if you go into the Umayyad period in Islam, in the sort of the latter part of the six, 600s, the 7th century, right when Islam was expanding north, there were Christians who designed the, the, some of the great early mosques. Uh, there were Christian architects who did it and were, you know, very close to the, to the, 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 early, uh, the early caliphs. And the Christian presence thrived that whole period. There was, people talk about forced conversion. It was a conversion of convenience uh, more than a forced conversion. Sure, there was some forced conversion. There always is in, in the history of, of religions. Uh, look at the way Christianity did forced conversion. Uh, here in the New World, but also how they did it, uh, you know, different competing groups. In India. Well, in India, but also in Europe itself. I mean, every time I hear somebody talk about the Arabs fighting with each other and they're all brutal barbarians and look at at what they're doing in Syria and look at what they're doing in Yemen and what they're 
And it's true. I mean, I, I, I'm furious about all these civil wars and what they're doing. I say, and they, they say there must be something in the Arab mind. I say, that is absolute bigotry. In the last century, in the 1900s, in just a period of 30 years, Europeans killed 55 million of each other in World War I and World War II. And that's not to speak of the tens of millions they killed in Asia, in South Asia, in Africa, and right next door in Ireland through their own brutality. And so don't tell me Arabs are brutal. Don't t- I mean, people are brutal. People can be really unconscionably inhumane to one another. It's not typical of any particular people. Europe actually set the standard for being brutal, number one. Number two, you know, the, the, the Christian presence back on that, um, like I said, has been there forever and has been a defining characteristic of the Arab East. I mean, one can't imagine Lebanon or Syria or Palestinian culture or uh, Iraqi culture without the presence of Christians or Egypt. The problem is, is that it's at risk today. It's at risk today because there has been a, a, an inflaming of, of extremist religion that has developed an intolerance. Look at what happened to the Christian community in Iraq. I mean, they went from 1.4 million to a few hundred thousand today. And I hold George Bush responsible for that. People pointed to Obama, but the massive decimation of that community started and was almost completed during the Bush era. It wasn't ISIS. It was the sectarian ethnic cleansing war that took place in 2004, 5, and 6 that resulted in many Iraqi Christians leaving. And people didn't understand in Syria that as brutal and as ossified and as corrupt as the Assad regime was, uh, Christians actually were fearful of him losing power because they were afraid, not of Islam, not of the, the Sunni Muslim tide, as it were. They were afraid of what, what, what it was, was mostly rural people. It was, there was a, a kind of an urbane culture in Aleppo, an urban culture in Aleppo and in Damascus and in Homs, where Muslim, Christian, whatever, got along and intermarried and whatever. It, it, it was like that in Iraq, too, where there was a sense of, there was no sectarian conflict, but it was a rural-urban thing that developed, and that's what ultimately created the fear of Christians. And what troubles me is that Christians have responded by becoming their own form of extremists in in each of the countries where they ally themselves with some of the most reactionary elements, figuring that that will protect them. And I'm not comfortable with that at all. I wasn't comfortable with Christians siding with Saddam or siding with Bashar al-Assad or or siding right now with the Sisi government in, in Egypt. But it's fear that led them in that direction, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's not a good thing at all. You don't develop harmony and equal citizenship in a country through persecution. It doesn't work that way. And I, 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 you know, I, th- I don't think anyone here has understood exactly uh, the this, this situation of the Christian communities, the minority communities in those countries, nor have they understood that the solution is not 
through military repression, but it's through creating uh, a civil society that respects equal rights of everybody in the country. Speaking to what you're saying about how it's unfortunate that Christians in many of those countries have found themselves kind of clinging to the regimes because um, they're scared and powerless. As somebody who grew up in a Christian home, it, it strikes me that that's, I guess, just a failure of American Christians to, I mean, show solidarity, I think, with with Christians in other parts of the world. And it seems like there's a real ignorance here. I mean, beyond just the the fanaticism of some parts of like, you know, evangelical America, there's just a genuine ignorance here. Like, I think a lot of evangelicals would be surprised if I said to them that there are quite a few Palestinian Christians. <laughs> I, I don't think they have any idea. What's, why, why the ignorance? What do you attribute that to? No idea. They have no idea at all. And there was a Palestinian priest, uh, Elias Shakur, who called Christians the living stones. He said the, 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 the evangelical Christians come on tours and they go through the Galilee and, oh, look, these rocks were here when Jesus was here. And, and oh, look, this, uh, those shepherds look just like the shepherds in the Old Testament. And Elias says, yeah. yeah. And they're still here and they're still living, but they're looked at as part of the landscape. It's just, oh, they're not looked at as real people who are part of a culture and of a society. And it's not what Christians don't need is for evangelicals here to say, we have to defend the Christians. What they need is for Christians here to say, we have to de defend and fight for and support those who are trying to create a Middle East that is free of sectarianism, free of, of, of repression, that supports equal rights, democratic rights for everybody who lives in every country. I was at an event with the Pope and the Sheikh al-Azhar in, in the Middle East in February, and they signed a declaration on, on human harmony in which they called specifically for equal rights and citizenship rights for everybody living in every country. Uh, the idea of Christians being a protected minority is wrong. The idea of basing citizenship on religion is wrong. Um, and that's what, we, that's what we have to fight for. So it's not just that the theology is screwy or that the blindness is screwy. It's that when they do get involved, uh, they get involved, I think, in the wrong ways and for the wrong reasons. Uh, they should be fighting, like I said, for a vision of equality and a vision of equal citizenship rights for everybody rather than for either military repression or for a society in which minorities get protected. That is a backward concept. Um, but thank you all very much. Thank you so much for coming and we really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.